Hello, listeners, and welcome to Monsters Advocate. Monsters Advocate is a weekly podcast focused around the unsung heroes of myths and legends, the monsters. We'll take a look at some monster-centric myths and legends, some not-so-ancient cryptids, and everything in between, and try to sort out possible origin species, biological impetus for why they do what they do, and why we love to hear about them. So, chances are, you the listener are not, nor have you ever been, a World War II aviator. Nor probably were you a Japanese citizen during the Middle Ages. You may not have even been alive in the first century. But, chances are, you probably have something in common with these people. You, too, have had a piece of technology inexplicably fail you. You felt guilt at some point over throwing away an old stuffed animal. And, perhaps most commonly, you've been startled when something you could have sworn was in one place turns out to be in another. This week is all about monsters that hate the saying, everything in its place. So let's take a look at creatures messing with your kitchenware, frying your electronics, pretending to be treasure, and taking revenge for being thrown away. Now our first guest is a creature you've probably heard of, not in the least because it has a movie named after it. The poltergeist, German for noisy ghost, is a classification of spirit that interacts with the physical world through phenomena like loud noises, knocking, or, the reason the spirit makes our list, destroying or moving objects. Poltergeists are most commonly thought of as a particularly nasty ghost, but poltergeists can also include other supernatural entities, such as elementals or fae. Unlike ghosts, poltergeists are also unique in that they generally aren't attached to a specific location, but instead attached to a specific person or type of person. Poltergeists most often attach to younger adults or adolescents, especially those who claim to be sensitive to the supernatural. There are a few theories about why this is, but one school of thought is that poltergeists feed on human vitality, and young people are just generally more vital. Don't think you're safe yet, though, olds, because once a poltergeist has attached to a person, they generally make themselves at home wherever their person of interest is, and this includes interacting with both the person of choice and any persons in their life through biting, scratching, pinching, tripping, levitating objects such as furniture and cutlery, and knocking. Kind of like a mean cat, if your cat has both opposable thumbs and psychokinetic powers. Generally, poltergeist activity starts out small, such as objects being moved to subtly different locations. But if the poltergeist is particularly nasty, can escalate into physical injuries, objects being thrown across the room, objects becoming lost for weeks only to resurface inexplicably, or in very bad cases, objects spontaneously combusting. There is some debate about poltergeists being able to possess dolls or other objects as a sort of vessel, but as you'll hear shortly, I believe there's a much better explanation for haunted dolls. Poltergeists can be found throughout the world, including the United States, India, Japan, Brazil, Australia, and most European countries. The general method of kicking out this handsy freeloader is contacting a person of power in your religion of choice and having them perform a ceremony to remove the spirit from the person it's dotting on, essentially a spiritual restraining order. This next creature, however, is not going to leave you alone so easily, especially if you're showing off that brand new iPhone, or you're a pilot. The gremlin, again, bearing little resemblance to the movie, is a creature that came about somewhat recently with the rise of aviation. This monster first made a name for itself in World War II, with the name Gremlin being credited to the British Royal Air Force airmen stationed in the Malta, Middle East, and India. Descriptions of this creature vary widely. One account describes gremlins as 
about 12 to 20 inches high, and a cross between an American jackrabbit and a bull terrier. They were sometimes seen wearing green trousers, a red jacket, spats, and a top hat. In Roald Dahl's book, The Gremlins, these creatures are depicted more as small humans. Interestingly, almost no accounts have gremlins actually possessing wings, so the assumption is that gremlins lived in airfields, waiting for the chance to hop aboard a moving plane. Once aboard a plane, though, the gremlins' main pastime was causing technical problems, such as cutting or biting through wires, messing with instruments, and, most especially, disrupting radio waves. This penchant for disrupting radio waves is one of the ways the gremlin branched out of the aviation field, as soon naval branches of the military would also blame problems with equipment on gremlins. This penchant for disrupting communication, though, may have roots in earlier mythology, specifically in a Welsh creature called the Coranyid. The story goes that the king of Britain, King Lud, had his kingdom overrun by Coranyids, a creature that overheard whatever was said and made secret-keeping impossible. He went to sea on the English Channel to try and meet his brother, the King of France, by boat, to see if his brother knew of any way to get rid of the creatures. However, whenever the brothers tried to speak to each other via speaking horn, Coran Yeeds would sneak into the horn and loudly insult the other brother. Finally, the King of France poured wine down his speaking horn and ejected the troublesome spirits, and was able to tell his brother about a special bug to crush and put in the water supply to get rid of the creatures, which I'm sure the peasants were thrilled about. Initially, Allied pilots suspected that gremlins had enemy sympathies, as it seemed a disproportionate amount of Allied planes had technical failures. However, an investigation was made into this claim, and it was found that the enemy aircraft had equally vexing mechanical problems, thus proving that, like the Koranyid, the gremlin is an equal opportunity saboteur. Which brings us to the gremlin now. The most famous gremlin appearance in modern media is the Twilight Zone episode Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, from 1963, which has been parodied by many shows since, including The Simpsons. While this famous scene still deals with planes, the gremlin attacks a commercial plane, and this subtle jump from military to civilian has prompted the idea of gremlins as equal opportunity tricksters for other technologies such as factory machinery, cars, household appliances, and cameras. Children's shows such as So Weird, Are You Afraid of the Dark?, and American Dragon Jake Long have featured this new, mechanically non-discriminatory gremlin. And though it hasn't happened quite yet, I have no doubt future children's shows will have gremlins that sabotage smartphones. Before we get to our last main monster, I wanted to briefly mention a newish monster that fits this category too well not to mention, but doesn't have a traditional folklore origin per se. This treasure of a creature is the Mimic an amorphous blob creature that can mimic the appearance of any object that fills a roughly 150 cubic foot space. These sticky, pseudopod-wielding little gems were first introduced in 1977 in the first edition of Dungeons & Dragons' The Monster Manual. Initially only able to mimic stone or wood, mimics came in two flavors, small and intelligent, or big and carnivorous. The smaller variety were able to speak several languages, including their own mimic language, and were friendly if given food. The larger ones are closer to the modern interpretation of the mimic, ambush predators that camouflage themselves as a stone or wooden chest tempting the unwary adventurer. It is still debated whether mimics are natural-born monsters or created by wizards, but since this first release, mimics have gone through several evolutions, including the metal mimic, which includes two subspecies, the space mimic, for space D&D, and the greater mimic, which fills a whole 30-foot room. Eventually, all these mimic types got out of hand, and with the exception of the space mimic, were merged into the mimic we see today. 
Mimics today can imitate any object within a 150 cubic foot space, speak common, and are neutrally aligned. But most often they appear as treasure chests. You just can't beat a classic. Our last guest is a hundred-year-old shoe. Or a lantern. Or a roll of cloth. Our last guest is a creature known as the Sukomogami, a special type of yokai, the yokai of tools. The general concept is that after a certain number of years, usually a hundred, but not literally, just very old, a tool, be it a shoe, a tea kettle, or even a roll of cloth, would gain a soul and thus become an animate being occupied by a spirit. Sukumogami usually appear as the tool they are, but can also shapeshift, taking on the appearance of a man or a woman, a child, an oni, a type of Japanese demon, or even an animal. Generally, these spirits are relatively harmless pranksters, and a great example of a harmless Sukumogami can be seen in the animated short about a ghost girl in a pair of shoes, Moses, a link to which I will include in the show notes. However, some people, not wanting their old futon to gain a soul, throw away their stuff on the figurative 99th year. These objects thrown away carelessly become angry and gain a soul anyway, becoming vengeful yokai that may or may not physically harm their previous owner. This is the best explanation in my opinion for creepy haunted old dolls, especially murderous ones. Now, an animate umbrella may not seem like much, but a prime example of how scary an object that wants to kill you can be is the 2014 horror film Oculus, in which a malevolent mirror takes revenge on a family. The best way to prevent death by old toothbrush is to avoid wastefulness, and maybe adopt a less minimalist lifestyle. However, if you just want to get rid of Woody and Co. without any dark repercussions, there is a solution. There are ceremonies in Japan that take place to this day to console discarded, broken, and unusable items. The object is left in a shrine with other unwanted objects, and a ceremonial blessing is said over them. The ceremonial blessing prevents a spirit from entering the object, and the subsequent ritual incineration is a comforting just-in-case. That's all for Monsters That Mess With Your Stuff. I hope you enjoyed these objectionable creatures, and if you're curious about any more of these stories, check out the show notes to find out more. Intro and outro music is by Scott Effington. Lastly, if you like what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes, or consider donating to our Patreon. Every little bit helps, and more support means I'm more motivated to do the best job I can to bring you more monsters. Thank you for listening, and remember, anyone can be a monster.